Hi, everybody. This is Tisha, and welcome to the Namaste Teach podcast. This is Den. We're so excited to be here with you guys today. Yes, I am so proud to introduce our guest today. We have a special guest for today's episode. Uh, I met Todd. His name is Todd. I met Todd online initially. Our meeting kind of was happenstance, but there's nothing that just happens. Things happen for a reason. I firmly believe that. And I was just learning about mindfulness and education and was looking for an individual in our state. Uh, As y'all know, I'm here in South Carolina. And I was looking for someone that was doing the work in mindfulness education in schools, public schools, trauma-informed practices. I was just looking for someone to connect with because I was getting into the work and was so excited to learn more. And I came across Todd's name online. We connected and emailed each other for about a year. And then we finally got a chance to, to meet in person at a retreat that he led. He is a person that I consider a friend and also a co-conspirator in this work of social justice, public education, mindfulness, trauma-informed practices, social emotional learning, all the things that we know will transform our educational system in this country. I could keep going. Todd is amazing. He's an amazing human being, amazing person, and he gives so much to the world. I am so honored to have him today. Jen and I both are so happy to talk with him and just connect. I'd like to introduce you to Todd Scholl. Thank you, Tisha. You are inflating my ego and I'm trying to diminish my ego. So (laughs) I'm gonna have to do some extra practice here, but thank you so much for that kind introduction and the the feelings are mutual. I appreciate um, the opportunity to speak with you today. That's so awesome. And it's always good to have more opportunities to do the work, Todd. So I'm glad that Tisha gave you that invitation this morning. Um, So I was reading a little bit about your bio, and I find that your journey has been so beautiful. To me, it seems like a beautiful integration of roots and wings, because you came from a family of educators, right? So, um, you know, you grew up in a family of educators, but also wings, because you've spread those wings in what you're doing presently and dare to reimagine what's possible for education through the lens of mindfulness and social emotional learning and social justice. So I'd like to know a little bit more about how this journey came to be and what advice you have for our listeners who want to explore both their roots and spread those wings. It's a really wonderful question. Thank you. Um, I have two incredible parents. Both of them were uh, public educators. Um, we'll start with my dad. My dad was in public education for over 50 years and spent most of that time teaching special uh, education uh, uh, in PMD classes, TMD classes, um, and was just an amazing educator. Folks looked up to him. He was a transformational kind of leader, and he did so very quietly. He ne- he never wanted to the focus and the spotlight to be on him. He wanted it to be on his students and he wanted to impact school culture in, in ways um, that I think are really positive. So I watched him do what he did for five decades. Um, His father was a public educator as well. He he grew up in Watertown, New York. Uh, My grandfather grew up in Brooklyn and uh, was orphaned at a young age and then wound up um, going to Syracuse university, getting a degree, became a principal. He had four sons, one of them, my dad, 
three of the four sons went in education, including my dad. So that's kind of where the education comes from my dad's side. Um, and um, his mom was not a, an educator, but they led um, summer camps for kids in, uh, in New Hampshire. And, um, and so she was an educator in a, in, a, in a way. My mom's side of the family, my, my maternal grandfather was a, uh, a lineman for the power company. Uh, my grandmother, my granny, was um, stayed at home, and uh, my mom was the first person in her family to go to college. She got a degree to go to SUNY Oswego, and she became an educator. And my parents met in education. Uh, I think my dad was the principal, and my mom was a teacher. And I don't know how that would fly today, but back then it was okay. And they met and uh, hit it off. And um, and so yeah, and so my mom was uh, an incredibly wonderful mom, a loving, caring mom, made me watch Mr. Rogers and vicariously taught me all the lessons that Mr. Rogers taught about empathy and kindness and um, loving yourself and caring yourself for yourself and others. And, um, and so I had a, you know, a mom who was essentially a really great early childhood educator uh, as a mom. And, um, and so I, I was very blessed and fortunate to have the parents that I had. And, um, I didn't want to go into education because it was sort of my form of rebellion, but I wound up in education and really tried to model my practices um, on, on what I saw them do, which is put their students um, as a priority and really care for them holistically, not just care about the contents of the curriculum and look at it technically, but to dig in and, and really let the kids know that I care about them and, and love them and, and want what was best for them. and that just helped me, um, like you said, spread my wings. And I learned from them and um, tried to have as much of a positive impact as I could, because um, I felt like that's how I could best honor the gifts that my, my parents gave me. Thank you, Todd. That's a beautiful story. And uh, as you're talking about your dad and being the principal, I don't know if that would fly now, but hey, it happens. And <laughs> right. you, know, you uh, came about as a result, and we're so grateful that they connected in that way. I want to shift gears a little bit to your career. I know you have a very extensive career in education, you know, 25 plus years, mm -hmm. and you've done uh, a lot of work in different spheres in education, but throughout your career, uh, it has evolved and transformed so much. And it brought you to just a few years ago, create for our audience who is not familiar to create the teachers aligned organization network and I'm proud to be a part of that but could you tell our listeners a little bit about how you uh, came to the idea to create Teachers Online and what your vision was for the organization and what vision do you have moving forward with the organization? Sure um, so uh, a couple of years ago first of all let me kind of just give a real brief rundown of where my career how the trajectory of my career led to it so I was a 15-year teaching veteran, um, had the honor of joining the staff at SARA, that's South Carolina Center for Educator Recruitment, Retention, and Advancement, uh, wound up on their senior staff. Um, and so I went from being a classroom teacher, kind of in a silo, uh, examining the world of education from the inside to going to a state level organization and being able to travel the state and sort of see the inequities that exist and see what teachers are experiencing statewide. So I, I was zoomed in uh, at a at a certain level in education. And then I got to zoom out and sort of see that 40,000 foot view or whatever, 30,000 foot view. Um, and what I saw was that 
Sarah was doing a really good job with teacher recruitment and retention um, programs and services. But one of the issues that I saw happening was that their teachers were increasingly find, finding themselves in a very toxic environment and uh, increasingly dealing with stress. And that resonated with my own personal story, which is I wound up about 20 years ago uh, in the middle of a, my teaching career and be, becoming a new father, uh, feeling overwhelmed. And that led to an anxiety disorder, which, which led to depression and some issues. And, um, and I found mindfulness as it took me a while, but I eventually found mindfulness as a tool to help manage that. So when I went and realized that teachers all across the state and really across the country were dealing with the same kind of stress and feelings of being overwhelmed, I started doing more research on mindfulness and, um, and then started doing those uh, professional development and, and then the retreats and then realized that there were people like you out there who were learning about this stuff, but there was no real centralized way of coordinating everybody and organizing our efforts and um, our communications and just supporting each other. So teachers aligned was the, the word aligned comes from what I see as a fundamental misalignment. And maybe we could talk about that later, but a misalignment that I think a lot of teachers are feeling and trying to help realign um, our systems of education to um, develop more compassion, to help people manage the stress. And ultimately it's about experiencing less suffering, reducing the amount of suffering that teachers are experiencing in their students. And um, that happens, I think, when we become more aligned with our deeper inner uh, parts of ourselves that are more authentic. And so Teachers Align was born out of that to help connect all those practices, to help people uh, direct their own self-development and to be a, a centralized organization where people could connect and share resources and for information. And then it developed into a podcast too. But over the past, uh, last June, I had a heart attack. Um, and uh, so I put the, a lot of the teachers aligned stuff kind of went on the back burner for a while, but moving forward, what my, my hope is really is to start at once the pandemic starts winding down is to start doing retreats again, because that's where I think the best kind of work happens. The best progress is made where people really get to immerse teachers, get to immerse themselves in these practices and understand that more than just at the theoretical level, but at the personal level, these practices, and then. And then the, I think it grows authentically and organically that way, the work, so. That's awesome, Todd. I just really appreciate the work that you're doing in the world with Teachers Aligned. Um, being an educator for 15 years, I've felt that myself and I resonated with the new parent thing um, mm -hmm. because I think that that's where uh, it was difficult before, but then when I was having to also care for my own personal children, my own self through that transformation, and then the education system, which is misaligned, as you, you know, indicated, that's where I really was having to make some important life changes. And that's when I've kind of found this work as well. And that's when Tisha and I really connected over this work. So that totally resonated with me and I'm sure with other listeners as well. Um, and I look forward to the retreats coming back yeah. and definitely be in attendance. Awesome. But also in the meantime, you know, you have regular encounters with educators and we need to come up with our contemplative practices now that just kind of sustain us, especially through this time, especially through the pandemic, teaching through the pandemic. That's been, Tisha and I started this podcast last February. So clearly the pandemic has been a hot topic for every single episode mm -hmm. we've been on. And it's a time that invites us deeper into the work, I think, because of just all the additional obstacles it brings to us as human beings. 
Um, but there's always some kind of barriers, I feel like, when I'm talking to teachers and creating contemplative practices. So I wondered if you could speak to any barriers that you see that are most um, pr like pressing and yeah. ways that teacher listeners could dissolve those barriers to create a practice that resonates for them. Yeah, sure. So there's two there's two barriers that I see. One that's been around for a while, and one that's relatively new. So I'll start with the one that's been around for a while. Um, when we talk about mindfulness and contemplative practices, we immediately um, connect them to spiritual traditions, and rightfully so. I think that sometimes I realized that I was. Uh, I think sometimes in the West, what we do is we take a practice and and then we strip it of a lot of its stuff from its roots and contemporary make it more palatable for contemporary audiences and then we fail to acknowledge the roots i mean you saw led zeppelin and rolling stones did that with blues music um and i think sometimes with these mindfulness practices we forget to acknowledge where they came from and i think that's important for us to do the problem with doing that in a public school setting is you got to be really, really careful because of the, you know, the important need to keep church and state separate to make sure that we're not um, making folks feel uncomfortable. And so there is one of the obstacles is how do we authentically honor where this came from, but also honor the fact that we have folks who may be atheist or have a fundamentalist Christian view in our schools, and we we want these practices to get to them. So how do we do that? Um, how do we mold those two things together? And I think there's ways to do that, but we've got to be respectful about the roots and traditions for where, from where these practices came from. But we also have to honor, you know, that the environment that we're in and be careful about that. So I think there's misconceptions, though, I think, I've seen, in fact, I just saw a thing today where this group was saying, don't practice yoga, don't practice meditation, don't play Dungeons and Dragons, don't watch Harry Potter movies and all that, because it's just, they associate those things with anti-Christian values. And, um, and so at being in a predominantly Christian state, I think there are some folks who balk at the idea of meditation because they see it as part of another spiritual tradition. When in truth, it's part of all spiritual and traditions, but we can we can do it respectfully and understand it as just a psychological practice of understanding how thoughts emerge from consciousness and how we often stick to our thoughts and uh, identify with our thoughts. And that leads us to unhealthy mental states like anxiety and depression and how we how these practices really are just a way of understanding the process of generating thoughts and how those thoughts can lead to these negative mind states and how we can kind of unravel that. And when we look at it like that, and also increasing the capacity to focus our attention on the present moment so that we can perform better at whatever it is we're doing and to let go of evaluation and judgment so that we can live more at peace, then those practices really can be done in a secular way and benefit everybody just the way jogging or exercise that benefits everybody. So that's one. And the second one that I'm seeing is more recent, the more recent phenomenon is there are teachers who, this is understandable. There are teachers who are in this toxic environment who are really stressed out. They're not being paid what they should be paid. Uh, they're being disrespected. And then you come, I come in and start talking about self-care and mindfulness and how it's perceived is 
listen, the problem isn't the environment you're in or your pay. The problem is you just need to breathe and relax and you just need to take care of yourself. And I think these teachers get offended, sometimes offended by that because it's almost seems like you're play, trying to placate them and trying to get them to ignore some of the systemic issues that, that are real and that they do need to advocate for themselves. Um, and so, but it, it can be perceived that way. And I totally get that. I totally get that. Like if, if I'm upset about something and someone just says to me, just breathe, you know, you're like, don't patronize me. Don't demean my real feelings that I have here. And I think that's really important. If we're going to be teaching self-care and mindfulness to teachers, it's important to acknowledge the pain that they are experiencing and what they're going through. And, um, and make sure that the leadership who asks us to come in and do these sessions understands that I'm not here to just get your teachers to be quiet and stop complaining. In fact, what I'm trying to do is to get them to wake up to systems of oppression, to wake up to their own suffering and give them the, the means to undo those systems of oppression and undo the, the, the toxic environment they find themselves in. So it's important. I think that's important, but Sometimes the baby's getting thrown out with the bathwater, um, which is unfortunate. That is so true. And I'm glad you brought those points up, Todd, because when we think of, you know, mindfulness practices and sometimes people do associate them with spiritual practices or spirituality or we're bringing religion into the schools. No, that's not it at all. And in fact, you are right. I mean, when you are connected to who you are, meditation, mindfulness, whatever you want to call it, allows you to become more in tune with yourself. Therefore, you're able to navigate these systems and to see things from a different perspective. And that's what we're trying to tell people. No, we're not saying just breathe, you know, your paycheck's what it is, but just breathe through and you'll be fine. You're right, you're right. I mean, the meditation and the mindfulness has, we know what it's done for our lives. And we're just trying to see, you know, show people that same way. Mm -hmm that yeah. it can change and transform their lives so they can see things mm -hmm. um, more clear. But another thing you brought up was the fact that when people get in retreat and when we were together, when we did the retreat up uh, near Asheville, we didn't know what church people went to. We had Christians, we had mm -hmm. all kinds of people coming together, but we came together around the contemplative practice that you could sit in silence and you could take a walk with nature. And it was such a beautiful setting that we were in. We're just trying to get people really to come back home to themselves, right? right. So um, that retreat was a great opportunity for people to connect. And we also talked about a lot of resources and books and stuff that people could uh, delve into if they wanna learn or just go into their practice deeper. Could you share with our listeners a few intro text that they could possibly uh, find on their own, easily find and read that could help them begin this journey of mindfulness. Sure, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of steer away from like uh, on a personal level. There are books for me that have spiritual uh, components to it that I'm gonna kind of steer away from. I'm gonna steer you towards some authors. Um, Dr. Rick Hansen has some really great books. I think his newest one's called Neurodharma. And he does use some terminology that sounds Buddhist, but really it's grounded in psychology. He is um, 
uh, an amazing uh, thought leader in, in this space. Um, Dr. Tish Jennings, Mindfulness for Teachers in the Trauma-Sensitive Classroom is a really good one for educators as well. Um, and I'm, I would point you towards some podcasts. I mean, we're listening to podcasts, so obviously uh, your listeners are used to going to podcasts. There's some really, there's one called 10% Happier, um, which is really good. I, I encourage you to also look up the work of Judson Brewer, who is a, um, a neuroscientist. I think he's from Yale. And look up Judson Brewer's work. Um, so those are some places where I would start. I think teachers need to talk about and need, need to think about this from the education perspective, but they do also need to have, if you haven't been exposed to the basic neuroscience and the psychology of how these practices work, I think it's helpful to, to know that, at least it was for me. It helped make the practice make more sense when I understood, like, what's the default mode network? What's, you know, how does the prefrontal cortex regulate what the amygdala is doing? You know, those types of things. Even though I, I'm not a neuroscientist, having that basic understanding, it's like, oh, yeah. So when I get really upset, here's what's really going on. Here's what, you know, the cortisol and the adrenaline is going through. And, and it can't, I can't just wash it away because I want to be calm. I've got, there's a stress response that I've got to go through. And then it helps me be a little bit more empathetic and understanding of other people who go through those stress responses as well. So I would start with, um, yeah, Dr. Rick Hansen, um, Judson Brewer, um, Tish Jennings. Thanks, Todd. Those are really helpful. And I agree. I like learn. I, I appreciate like that mainstream is doing so much with neuroscience. And I think mm -hmm. that's, you know, speaking to the last question that we were talking about of Pe uh, teachers buy in, or I guess people in general, their buy in. I think that marriage of neuroscience coming on board has been helpful um, with this practice. And I really loved what you said about um, teachers. Like, I've had that experience. I was like, yes, I see this is a huge barrier when I'm telling people to practice these practices and they're so resistant because of all the pain and the trauma that they're feeling. Mm -hmm. um, and that does feel like that's more, like I know you said that it was like a newer barrier and that feels more and more prevalent as the years go on. Yeah. And so to me, it's so important to think about what you said about mindfulness and meditation as a ways to wake us up to the activism. And yes. I think about it as like, we first need to hear our voice so then we can use our voice. Mm -hmm. And so in our fast-paced society and in our present misaligned education system, we're not taking the space to do that. And so getting more people to understand that that's what we're trying to do here. And that's a huge part of it. So I love that. Right. Um, so because you are such a huge proponent for activism and especially in our education here in South Carolina, I know that you're very passionate about the issues that affect our schools and what our schools need in order to transform and make these systemic changes. So what do you think, and I think you were addressing this a little bit earlier with the misalignment, but what do you feel is the greatest issue facing our schools, specifically in South Carolina, and then in our nation in general? And how can we use this moment that we're in right now to transform the way we educate our children? Wow, that's a big question. And it was a big question. It's awesome. It <laughs> no, it's awesome. I love that. Um, I think about this a lot. I think about this all the time, and I try to articulate myself through blog posts and through videos. Um, I've developed a theory and I used to talk about the symptoms of the problem and, and then, and then would connect the dots to the core. And then when I was thinking about this, um, this weekend, I was thinking, I was thinking maybe I need to reverse that and start with the core, like what I see is the core issue and then work, work out and how it connects to the symptoms of the issue. So let's start at the core. 
Um, Eckhart Tolle uh, talks about uh, egoic dysfunction at the personal level and at the collective level. And this is where I think the core issue is. We have egoic dysfunction um, as individuals and as a society. That egoic dysfunction is manifested in our systems of economy, our political systems, and then in our school systems. And so the school systems are built, premised upon this dysfunction, which is primarily that uh, I think ultimately is a fear, a fear of death um, manifests as I need to build up my, the identities that I have that are, that construct my ego. I need to build them up as big as I can, because what that does is it helps me process this fear of death, this fear that I'm personally going to be extinguished. So the more I can build up my identity through power, through material wealth, through, you know, leadership or whatever it is through, through certain religions, through practices, through political power, through monetary power, through having power over other people. So uh, whether that is uh, white supremacy, whether that's patriarchal systems, if I have power over people, I'm building up that ego, which is really just a sandcastle because it's all going to go away, but it helps me process this fear of death, right? So what happens is all that, that, thing we've just unconsciously is been embedded throughout all of our systems, including our education system. And we teach kids essentially that their self-worth is conflated with how much material success they have. So we prepare them to try to get them as much material success as they can. So we call it college and career ready. We, we want to prepare you for a career. How are you going to fit into this capitalistic system so you can make a lot of money, so you can buy bigger houses, bigger cars, all of the gadgets that you want, the clothes that you want, and feel more real, more substantial as, a, as an egoic entity, right? And, and this is what quells that fear of death for us as human beings. But what happens is it creates that fundamental misalignment that I was talking about, because at the core, what this is, Freire calls this an adaptation rather than integration. And Marx says that what this is, is it creates self-alienation rather than self-actualization. And Thoreau would say that it, uh, rather than living authentically and sucking the marrow out of life, we are living uh, lives of quiet desperation. And so what happens is the systems of education reinforce that materialist worldview and reinforce the idea that kids, your value is how much money you can make and how you fit into this capitalist system. And then the kids grow up with that. It's just sort of the default. They don't know to question it. And the teachers, a lot of the teachers just think this is the purpose of public education. And then what ends up happening is there's this misalignment because what happens is the capitalists are increasingly no longer really in need of American public schools because they can move their factories overseas now, they can outsource their jobs, they can use AI, they can use automation. And when that continues to increase, well then I don't really need public education anymore to, to thrive as a, as a capitalist. So what teachers are seeing is the this, this, this slow degradation of the public education system because it was built on faulty premises that really what it was about is helping kids fit into this capitalist economy. 
And really what it should have been built on is how do we, how do we uh, improve human flourishing? How do we help people lead happy, healthy lives of peace and joy and be in alignment, not only with themselves, but with other people and with the environment. And this collective egoic dysfunction we can see in the way humans interact with each other. We see it in our political systems. You've seen it recently in our political systems and you see it like with war, we see it with the way we treat the environment and the way we treat habitats for animals and the way we exploit each other because we're all fundamentally out of alignment because the metrics by which we measure success are all materialist and have nothing to do with what's on the inside. And until we address that core issue, what we'll find is teachers are gonna find themselves in an environment that's increasingly toxic. They're not gonna be paid what they're worth they're going to be told that the, the, the primary function of their jobs is to get these kids prepared for a test because the test has the skill sets that the capitalists need. And I'm not anti-capitalist, so I don't want anybody going out, you know, running around saying, you know, I, I think that those labels don't necessarily serve us well. But, but the, point, the point I'm trying to make is we have incredible levels of wealth inequality, right? You see it in the state of South Carolina. I've traveled around to towns like Allendale, Dylan, where these factories have moved overseas and there's no tax base and the school systems are struggling because they can't afford to pay teachers what the, the teachers in Greenville or Spartanburg or Charleston or Ori make because there's no tax base there anymore. And so those kids grow up, they struggle to, those school systems struggle to get high quality, quality teachers in there and to retain them and they don't have the resources. And then there's these cycles of poverty that continue to happen. And those kids get left out of this materialist system um, because they don't, they aren't given access to the resources they need to be successful, even in a, in a system that isn't even that great to begin with. So if the, if, until we go back to that core issue of the collective egoic dysfunction, the symptoms are going to keep popping up. It's like, it's like saying, we're going to do chemotherapy on your lung cancer, but we're still smoking. It's not, you're never going to get rid of the problem until we go back and address that collective ego dysfunction, which is at the root of not just our problems in education, but in politics and uh, our economy and, and, and it's manifested. We see it, we see environmentally, economically, and educationally, all the, 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 the results of this dysfunction. So that's teachers are fighting for better pay and fighting for better working conditions and, and all of that. And I support that. And I, join them in that. But until you get to the root of the cause of the problem, you're just treating symptoms and you're not treating the root cause. So that's it. Exactly. So well said. And we could talk for hours about this subject. We're very passionate about it. But you know what? Yeah. The pandemic has like pulled the curtain back mm -hmm. on a lot of these issues or off of a lot of these issues now. And teachers are, are waking up, I think, and they're waking up by using their voice to lead the profession, unfortunately, yes. to see that this is not working for us in education the way it stands. And we see the, the inequities that we know already existed. Yes. They're exacerbated and, and people can no longer turn away because we're forced to see it now. So yes. we have those of us that are sticking in education and staying, we have the opportunity to really uproot a lot of these systems and really bring about real change because we know that it has not worked the capitalism and even with testing they've taken the test out because okay kids have, been, have not been in school so we can't standardize test them anymore well we never needed to do that anyway to show 
what kids know. So the pandemic has been, uh, it, it shed so many lights on things that have been in the dark that we knew of and those are like-minded have been talking about for years, but it's, it's kind of yeah. good that we're seeing it and we're talking about it now. So we've almost come to the end of our episode, Todd. You have been an amazing guest and Jen and I both, uh, we've been writing notes, taking notes and we'll share the resources, the books, the people um, or just the, the individuals that you talked about. Uh, you brought about some of my favorites, Thoreau and you know, just the philosophers, things that we need to go back to you know, as a nation and, and as, as educators to get to the root so that we can have our wings and transform this system because we have the power to do it. So uh, Jen, if you don't have any more, if you wanna add some parting words, Todd, we appreciate you again. And our, our listeners, um, they, I know they'll go back to this episode because you put so much, you need like a notepad just to write down some of the things that you said. It's so profound and, and it just uh, thought provoking and we were just so grateful. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and I feel like I could ask more questions, but I need to sit with and process all of the amazing things we already just spoke about in this last half hour. Um, it's just so true and so profound. And I'm just, I'm excited to go back in and listen and share this with our listeners as well so they can do the same. I appreciate that. Thank all right, you. everybody, for the Namas Teach podcast, this is Tisha. And Jen. and then Jen, and we have Todd here. Oh, I do. Can I get one more question? I do want to know a little sure. bit more about retreats, Todd. I do want you to share with our listeners. I know that they're on the back burner for right now, but um, are you doing anything virtually this summer or where can we find you? Um, you can find me. Um, my email is toddsholl at gmail.com. So T O D D S C H O L L at gmail.com. Um, and, you know, this is important. Like we're talking about systemic change. It starts within ourselves, right? So um, these retreats are really important because it helps us figure out what's going on inside ourselves. Um, my hope is to have some information on some retreats for this summer, uh, sometime in April. Um, and I'm hoping to do it face-to-face -face and would require everybody to have been vaccinated. I'll be fully vaccinated by mid-April. So um, my hope is that the facility will allow us to do something in June or July. And um, they can find information on that at uh, mindfulnessretreat.weebly.com. And if you're interested in hosting a retreat for 10 people, you can reach out to me and I'll help you organize that. Okay, great. That's great information. We'll also include that in the show notes. All right. I'll really let you go this time. I promise. Okay. <laughs> no, no rush. No worries. Yeah. Thank you so much. And we'll see y'all again next time here at the Namaste podcast. All right. Stay well. Thank you.